Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Friday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. We left off on Wednesday with Solomon firmly on the throne, established as king over all of Israel. David has died. Solomon has the kingdom firmly in hand. And now what will he do? Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. The very first thing Solomon did once he had the kingdom in hand, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now we talked about this in our study of the Song of Songs. Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he do that? Well, David had forged a united monarchy out of a loose confederation of 12 tribes. And he did so through warfare, through controlling strategic locations on the trade routes, the Via Maris and the King's Highway. The Via Maris begins in Egypt and it parallels the Mediterranean coast, cuts into the Jezreel Valley at Megiddo, and then onward to Damascus, north. The King's Highway originates in Egypt, crosses the northern Sinai Peninsula, and then heads north through the eastern mountain range up to Damascus, where it converges with the Via Maris. There are three major linking roads on the land of Egypt that connect the Via Maris and the King's Highway. All the battles David fought in his younger days were to control strategic locations on the trade routes. And in doing so, in controlling the land bridge linking Europe, Asia, and Africa, and in making an alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, who controlled the maritime trade routes, David forges that united monarchy. Solomon inherits it. And the first thing he does is form an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and marries Pharaoh's daughter. By making an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the food production center of the ancient world, and controlling the land bridge linking Europe, Asia, and Africa, and inheriting the alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, who controlled the Mediterranean trade routes, Solomon vertically integrates the entire economy of the ancient world, the ancient Near Eastern world, and rises to a position of power unlike anyone has ever had. It was a brilliant move. Was he in love with Pharaoh's daughter? He didn't even know her. But by marrying her, he and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, are now family. This deal has been forged by marriage. We're now family. And I mentioned in our study of the Song of Songs that the 700 wives and 300 concubines that Solomon had, he didn't even know them. They were daughters of tribal warlords all throughout the land as Solomon expanded his influence all the way over into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, down into Egypt, and all the way north up past Tyre and Sidon. Where did Solomon's fantastic wealth come from? From trade, from controlling the trade routes and vertically integrating the entire ancient economy under his control. Brilliant move, I've got to say. 
well. He brought Pharaoh's daughter to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. We had the tabernacle, that's a tent, a portable structure. And the tabernacle itself is in the courtyard of the palace. Remember, David had brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the courtyard. How can David establish credibility as king? Well, if God moves into his house, the pillar of cloud and fire in the courtyard of David's palace, that's a pretty good stamp of approval. But it's only a tent. David wanted to build a temple for God. But God said to David, no, I can't let you do it, David. You have too much blood on your hands. Not the blood of warfare, but the blood of Uriah the Hittite and his men, the murders that David performed. So the people are still sacrificing at the high places. There was no central location. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes his father of his father David. Well, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So Solomon was also doing these pagan rituals. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Solomon never did anything by halves. A thousand burnt offerings. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. It may have been a pagan high place, but the offerings were to God. So God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered in his dream, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son, me, to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a child. Well, he's 30 years old. He's not a young boy. But he's inexperienced in governing. I, I don't know how to carry out my duties. This job is overwhelming to anyone. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a, a, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So what do I want? Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Give me the wisdom to govern, to know right from wrong, and to govern your great people. Well, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment 
in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. Now notice, it's very specific. Since you have not asked for wealth or the death of your enemies, which has pretty much already been done, but for discernment in administering. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. You will make very wise decisions in governance, in administering. And moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke. Oh, he realized it, it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he gave a feast for all his court. Now notice what God grants Solomon. What he asked for, wisdom in administering. But then God said, I'm, I'm going to give you a, another gift. I'm going to give you great wealth beyond your dreams and honor. You'll have no equal among kings. I know most people would say, well, that's a pretty darn good gift. But I'm not so sure. I think it's a double-edged sword. One sharp edge is in administration, in managing the kingdom. But the other, the riches, the honor, that can cut both directions. In the end, it will be Solomon's wealth and how people view him that will bring an end to the kingdom. The blessing is a double-edged sword. Be careful what you ask for. Now, let's have an example of Solomon's wisdom in administering justice and the nation. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 16, a famous story. Now, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one else in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on top of him. She rolled over on him and smothered him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him near my breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, 
I got up to nurse my son. He, he, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, No, 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 no. The living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours and the living one is mine. So they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine's alive. How will he resolve this? Wisdom in administering justice. Discernment in administering justice. That's the gift. And watch how it works. The king said, Bring me a sword. So he brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held Solomon in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Of course, the real mother of the child would have compassion for the child. The other woman didn't. A brilliant ruling by Solomon. So King Solomon ruled over all Israel, and these were his chief officials. A whole list of people. Solomon had 12 district governors over all Israel who supplied provisions for the king and the royal household. Each one had to provide supplies for one month in the year. And these are their names, and we have a whole list of other names. Solomon had 12 administrative districts with governors over each. Now here's the brilliance in administration. Israel, up until the time of David, had been a loose confederation of 12 tribes, all within their geographical territory, bounded by mountains, rivers, valleys, and so on. They had little interaction with each other. They were essentially autonomous tribes, David brings them together through the, the sheer force of his personality. But Solomon draws 12 administrative districts, not according to the 12 tribes, but overlaying the tribes, splitting them, if you will, into administrative districts, some from the tribe of Judah, some from the tribe of Benjamin, all in one administrative district and a governor over them. And what he did, what he accomplished by doing that, was to break tribal loyalties. The loyalties would go to him. The governors were appointed by him. So no longer do we have, as we did in the book of Judges, 
individual judges emerge from the tribes. No, now it's centralized government with 12 administrative districts, which overlapped a number of tribes. That was brilliant. Solomon neutered the tribal warlords by doing this. And each of the 12 administrative districts provided provisions for the king and the household for one month each year. It was a tax. The expenses of the palace and the kingship would be paid equally by each administrative district once a year. Now we read in verse 20 of chapter 4, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, the Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. His administrative power spread all the way over into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Iraq of today, Assyria and Babylon of Old Testament times. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects, his vassals, all their life. Now, supporting a palace and a kingship, a monarchy, is not cheap. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 coors, that is about 185 bushels, 30 coors of fine flour and 60 coors of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. That's not for the year, that's for one month. He ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tifta to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. He had peace because everyone was prospering from Solomon's brilliant administration, from the trade, the economy that he created. And during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, the furthest point north to the furthest point south, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. They were prosperous times, thanks to Solomon. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and other horses. So the centralized government in Jerusalem was supported by the 12 administrative districts and it was expensive to run that kingdom. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. In fact, Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Kokal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. These were the wise men of the day, 
Why, he was smarter than Einstein. He was brighter than the sun. <laughs> and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. The book of Proverbs. We'll have a look at those in a little while. 3,000 proverbs. There aren't 3,000 proverbs in the book of Proverbs. There's about less than 1,000. His songs, numbered 1,005. He wrote Proverbs, which are clever and memorable one-liners. 1,005 songs. Imagine. That's more than Paul Anka. But what was the best one? What was the song of songs? The one we studied only a couple weeks ago. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. He had an insatiable thirst for knowledge and the brain to acquire it and the means to acquire it. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon is doing pretty darn well for himself in the early years of his kingship. There's one thing left to do. David wanted to build a temple for God. But God said, no, David, I can't allow you to but I will allow your son to do it. So Solomon is going to build the temple. In fact, as we'll learn next week, it's not Solomon's temple. It's David's temple. David designed it, drew up the blueprints, financed it, had the stone quarried for it, hired the laborers and trained them, David did everything except lift up one stone and put it on another. And we'll see how it works when I'm with you again on Monday. So, hey, good week today, finishing off. Good week indeed. Be sure to check out LogosBibleStudy.com, the new Logos Bible Study, and uh, have a look. I started a blog uh, this week, and I have a few entries up there now. And uh, it's right there on the website, top right-hand corner of the homepage. Uh, check out the blog. It's a place where, you know, we have, I have office hours, drop-in office hours on Zoom every Tuesday and Thursday from 11 till noon. And uh, we get lots of people coming, just dropping in and talking, asking questions. And during our discussion sessions uh, on Saturday morning from 10 to 12, a lot of questions there too. So I'd like to share those questions and answers with you on the on the blog, as well as go deeper into some topics uh, than we can do uh, just teaching the classes. So check out the website, LogosBibleStudy.com, the new Logos Bible Study. And I hope to see you there as, as a subscribed student taking 22 university-level courses, 450 videos, and, well... I'd love to see you with me. Hey, thank you. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.